Hello and welcome back to Lutheran Witness Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Askins. Here on the Lutheran Witness Podcast today, we are going to go through the September snippets. But before we dig into that, I want to give a quick shout out to our podcast partners, KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Check them out, kfuo.org. Today we have a special guest with us on the snippets. It's Pastor Sean Dinzer, the LCMS Director of Worship and the International Center Chaplain. How are you doing, Sean? Hey, it's great to be here. Doing great. Good. So uh, just a quick note to you, Pastor Denzer is completely unprepared for these things. I walked by his office today and said, hey, would you be interested in talking about snippets today? And he agreed to do it. So thank you, Sean, for being willing to do this. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> so the snippets from the September issue of The Lutheran Witness. Uh, the first half the around the LCMS is focused simply on convention stuff. And this is part of the reason why I asked Pastor Denzer to come because he was very involved in convention things, weren't you, Sean? I was there. And he had a few things to do there. Uh, and uh, so he has, he'll has he have some things to, to comment on as we work through these. And then uh, we have some fun stuff in general news, too. So let's just dive right on into the first one. This is page six of the September issue around the LCMS snippets. During the convention, the LCMS entered into or ratified fellowship with five international church bodies, Delegates ratified the fellowship declared by the LCMS president with the Evangelical Lutheran Church of South Sudan, Sudan, and with the Evangelical Lutheran Mission Diocese of Finland. They also declared fellowship with the Lutheran Church of Uganda and the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Ukraine. And finally, the convention recognized the Ceylon Evangelical Lutheran Church in Sri Lanka, the result of years of work by the LCMS missionaries and organizations as a full partner church. So what you have here is actually a series of different ways that the LCMS can enter into fellowship with another church body. Uh, it can be done uh, by the president and then ratified by the convention. It can actually be declared by the convention itself, or the convention can recognize, actually, I think there's one or two other ones too. The convention can recognize the fellowship, uh, full fellowship with a daughter church. And so you have three of those examples here. And some of this has been going on for quite some time. The work of the Evangelical Lutheran Mission Diocese, for instance, we've been discussing, it seems like, for quite some time over the last two or three years. Absolutely. And they had a situation where, I mean, unique, they're coming out of state churches. Uh, a state church in Finland is the Lutheran Church, uh, but they've kind of abandoned steadily the doctrine of teaching of the church. And uh, so the, there are many benefits to wanting to stay a part of that church, not least of which is trying to reach out and call them to repentance and back to the faith. Uh, but, you know, that makes some fellowship difficulties for us uh, who are looking for agreement in the articles of the gospel uh, as a prerequisite to altar and pulpit fellowship. So in many ways, we've been friends. Uh, their bishop was a student of our seminaries. So we have been uh, working together and talking to each other for, I mean, since their inception. Uh, so it's delightful now to to recognize this fellowship. And, uh, it, that's an example of the great patience that we have. We're not, uh, there's no emergency in this. Um, uh, the, the divisions in the church uh, pre-exist the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. They pre-exist the Reformation. Um, uh, so uh, as Paul says, they're genuine from time to time to uh, necessary to understand who is genuine among you. Uh, but we are delighted to recognize when the Holy Spirit has given us a common confession of the faith. And uh, so it was one of the most joyful parts of the convention for sure. Indeed, indeed. And especially, so the Declaration of Fellowship with the Ceylon Evangelical Lutheran Church in Sri Lanka, I found particularly delightful. 
I've spent some time over there. I saw the found, founding. I was there actually there in Sri Lanka for the founding convention of the CELC. And to see them become full partners is a very encouraging and delightful development in the work of a, the international the international work of the LCMS. So. Worship-wise, we were able to have some of these partner church uh, leaders who were present with us serve in the worship service as well after they had been recognized uh, to have this altar and pulpit fellowship. So we had a couple of them read the lessons. Uh, and uh, again, uh, Bishop Poyola from Finland was fantastic because his English is, you know, Norse. Uh, <laughs> those uh, dark, heavy metal uh, Northern <laughs> European guys. But uh, he read something uh, about Paul standing trial before Festus. And, uh, well, if you know the story uh, from uh, their church, that's pretty timely for him. Yeah, that will come up here again in, in a minute, just in, in the snippets. So on a related note, the next snippet the LCMS also acknowledged broken fellowship with the Japan Lutheran Church as a consequence of false doctrine and practice. Despite nearly 15 years of conversation and warning from the LCMS, the JLC has chosen to uh, both to ordain two female deacons and to remove the male requirement for those in the Office of the Holy Ministry from their constitution. The resolution also acknowledged the Synod's readiness to rejoin fellowship with the JLC should it repent and return to correct doctrine. And practice. So this is a harder one. The LCMS has only done this now twice, um, acknowledged broken fellowship. It's important to point out here that the LCMS is not hereby breaking fellowship. They are acknowledging that the fellowship has already been broken, just as it is with uh, joining into fellowship. This is a recognition when we, when we declare fellowship with a church body, it's a recognition that we are already teaching the same thing, that we have this unity in doctrine and practice. Um, same thing with the breaking of fellowship. It's an acknowledgement that it was already broken, and this this fellowship is broken through false doctrine and false practice here uh, in the practice of ordaining, particularly ordaining women and refusing to practice close communion. It's really well said because, uh, I mean, it'd be easy for us to just get together, hang out as friends for a while, and then conclude, well, I guess we're all right. But it's not on the basis of that. It's not on the basis of any human external organizational work uh, to kind of build ourselves up to a consensus where we can say that we're in fellowship. No, our touchstone is the Holy Scriptures and the teaching that comes from the Bible and our Lutheran confessions and their clarity on this. Uh, so we we look for that. And uh, I love it. A couple other conventions ago when we joined fellowship with a small, I believe, Danish Lutheran church, mm -hmm. and uh, they acknowledged that actually we had been in fellowship once before and they had recognized broken fellowship with us and uh, and they they made it very clear that uh, they'd be happy to recognize that again if it ever were the case. Uh, they didn't think that they needed to be tied to us, big American church, in order to be important. Uh, the scriptures are what mattered to them. God be praised for that kind of clarity of confession, and God granted us too. A uh, very sad moment, uh, uh, not something we wanted to see. And uh, I am encouraged that there is still uh, missionary work ongoing in Japan uh, through our Office of International Mission. Um, but, uh, yeah, especially for those who have worked uh, for many years with the Japanese uh, yeah. Lutherans there, uh, painful. In, indeed. And also, um, it is important to note the openness of the LCMS, once again, to welcome the JLC back into fellowship should they turn uh, and, and correct uh, this false doctrine, should that happen. That was definitely a part of the conversation as well. Uh, granted. Let's move on to the next uh, snippet. Convention delegates also voted to affirm in-person communion. The resolution acknowledges the local gathering of God's people around word and sacrament as a necessary part of receiving the supper, while commending pastors who sought to 
provide care to their flocks in a time of pandemic. It also clearly and unequivocally rejects and condemns the practice of virtual or online communion. The convention was also informed that only a very small group of congregations are practicing, currently practicing online communion. So this is, has been a topic for debate and discussion for some time since the pandemic, really. I know the uh, Council of Presidents has talked about this internally and published documents on this, and it continues to be an object of a uh, topic of discussion even after this uh, this resolution. Uh, what did you think of the discussion on the floor or anything about this when this came up? It's something I think everyone, including me, I'm not exactly in a parish here, but uh, our daily chapel went online and uh, it's been online even more so since the pandemic. Uh, and how do you care for people from a distance uh, while maybe you weren't able to gather together? I think it's good to acknowledge the challenges that in some ways can be overcome by technology. These are means of communication. And so for communicating with your members, fantastic. Uh, but it's so easy for us to slip into the, we just say this kind of colloquially, you know, join me on my podcast, join me <laughs> online, whether we're joining each other in any true sense of the word at all, right? Uh, I mean, we're able to communicate. That's the cool part about these tools. Uh, but it isn't a substitute for being together. I mean, even the convention itself, which, boy, if we could just handle that all digitally. It would be a lot cheaper. It would be a lot cheaper and maybe a lot easier to take, but uh, <laughs> but it wouldn't be the same as actually gathering together, yeah. right? And, you know, whether it's the joyful things like worship, whether uh, recognizing uh, fellowship with these institutions, or just seeing one another. I mean, it is a fantastic reunion. Uh, but that's that's the way we're meant to be every week as we gather around the Lord's Word that it would shape us together. Uh, you know, God granted that we could have everybody together in one room. That'd be a pretty big room to hold the entire church universal from all times and places. I don't know if we'll ever see that until the last day. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, we're going to get there eventually. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, as much as possible, we're going to gather together. Yeah. Um, we actually will discuss this again in the January issue, upcoming January issue of Lutheran Witness, uh, talk about uh, online worship and what this entails and, um, and so stay tuned for more on, on that topic. Next snippet, the delegates also called on the LCMS to produce a set of academic standards of Lutheran education. This resolution was composed in response to overtures calling for distinctively Lutheran curricula for all subjects and ages because the cost of such curricula was estimated at 30 to $50 million. The resolution called for Lutheran education standards instead of curricula. So I thought this was interesting. Uh, the goal here, the desire here is to put together not simply a uh, set of, okay, here's the information you need to know. Let's put a Lutheran veneer on top of this. But what is mm -hmm. a distinctively Lutheran approach to education? Uh, a bunch of these resolution or overtures originally called for CPH to produce something. CPH estimated, as it says, the cost to be 30 to $50 million to produce an entire curricula. I think they wanted K through 12 probably is what they were looking for. Mm. Um, but this uh, this kind of pulled that back instead said, let's let's set some guidelines and then uh, see what we can do to operate within those guidelines. Do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, I think it's a question uh, some sharp people have certainly asked me. Uh, in particular, in worship, it overlaps with school music programs uh, and school chapel programs, which certainly there are uh, chapel helps that come out from a joint project of our youth office and our school office. Uh, but it's interesting that it, the price tag would be so high. I, I 
that shows my ignorance. Yeah, me too. I, I, I was thinking, okay, what, is, what all does this entail? And I would imagine they're probably including in this not simply the development of the materials itself, but, you know, printing, you know, all the stuff that goes into this. Probably research so they knew what they were talking about too. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, if you're going to get somebody that, that actually knows what they're talking about, they're not going to be cheap to, to pay for this. And I don't know if there's going to be, you know, training. I don't know. It's, it was, seemed like a lot to me as well, but... Um, uh, so I think it's a fascinating thing that you and I as pastors probably don't understand. We hear standards. Yeah. We're thinking laws. Okay, we want to be about the gospel anyway. Uh, but also, like, if you're going to make your teachers teach the faith and and teach everything surrounding the faith, I don't want them to just be teaching it because they are told they have to or ought to from a standard. I want them to do it from the heart. And, and I think our Lutheran school teachers do this from the heart. I mean, they love the faith. They love Christ. They love uh, the truth uh, that they want to inculcate along with all the other subjects to their kids. So I don't think we have that difficulty, but it is very helpful for those who maybe aren't rostered teachers, who aren't Missouri Synod Lutherans even, to have those standards uh, so that they may know how to not be offensive and and to work with their fellow rostered teachers who who know the doctrine and everything that stands behind what we teach. So so uh, while it might be kind of baffling to me as a pastor sometime, I, I've been helped along to see the value of some of those things. Good. All right, Resolution 7-03. This is the new, the next snippet. To call Concordia University, Texas leadership to repentance also passed. Both uh, LCMS Texas District President Reverend uh, Michael Newman and Dr. Don Christian, Concordia University, Texas president and CEO, were given time to address the assembly. Every speaker expressed the desire for reconciliation. One delegate also noted that for reconciliation to take place, there must first be repentance. After much discussion, the resolution passed by 71.67%. Hello, this is Roy Askins. Sorry for a brief interruption of your regular programming. Uh, we discussed this news, this snippet about Concordia, Texas. Briefly, we had a few thoughts. Things have changed, however, in the time since this was recorded, and we decided it was best that any comment come from official sources at this point. So visit reporter.lcms.org and search for Concordia University, Texas to get all the details. Sorry for the brief interruption. Back to the regular programming. All right, next snippet. The convention welcomed a number of international guests. Among them were the Reverend Dr. Can you pronounce that one for me? I'll do my best. Johanna Poyola. Bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Mission Diocese of Finland and Dr. Paivi Reisinen, I believe. I believe that's correct as well. A medical doctor and longstanding member of the Finnish parliament, both of whom addressed the convention recounting their experience being prosecuted in the Finnish courts for confessing the biblical truth. A video interview of them may be viewed at our sister publication, reporter.lcms.org. This is an incredible story that I think is frankly making it to uh, maybe other news sources. Yeah, Fox News contacted us about this. My goodness, wow. Uh, And it is an amazing story, especially since it's litigation about old things. It's not like they're, you know, harping on Twitter and uh, posting kind of inflammatory things from the Bible, which let's admit we could find a few. (laughs) Almost anything we quote from the Bible will be inflammatory at this point. Uh, But... uh, these are old documents. These are just the, the kind of things that uh, our Concordia Publishing House puts all, all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, clear, simple teachings, little pamphlets on human sexuality and the biblical position, uh, the standard position that, again, Christians have held without probably much thought. 
until maybe the last uh, 100 years or so. Uh, and now these things are really being pressed and continual appeals uh, against them. So it's quite remarkable, especially for a church, again, that had an established Lutheran church yeah. uh, for so many centuries. Yeah, it was great to hear both of them speak. Um, I didn't hear a whole lot of either speeches as I was manning the cameras at the time, but it was great to have them here and, and uh, representing Finland for we us. We got a lot of a lot of uh, uh, Finland on on the stage at this convention, <laughs> uh, but I think it was worth it. I agree. Uh, that wraps up the snippets for the from around the Yelsa Mass. Uh, if you want even more details on the convention, once again, please visit reporter.lsms.org or the LSMS convention webpage, lsms.org slash national slash slash convention slash national is what it is. And I believe we published over 40 articles on uh, in those five days uh, on things related to the convention. So uh, there's a lot to read and catch up on if you're interested in such things. Well done to you and your team. Uh, well, they, it was uh, the, the, uh, it was the uh, Cheryl Magnus and, uh, and Megan Mertz were running the, uh, the uh, newsroom down there. So they did a lot of hard work and putting that together for us. So we're really grateful for that. We actually, fun, fun factoid here, Eric Lunsford, Synod photographer, reported that we we took uh, or we made 16,000 frames, so 16,000 photos. And of those 16,000 photos, we selected 380, almost 400 photos wow. uh, that we edited and, and posted. So that's quite a, quite a lot. Okay, moving on to the next page. This is uh, page seven, uh, general news. Uh, this is more, uh, as you guys know, related to uh, things going on in the world, uh, more secular uh, interest. The White House has secured the voluntary commitment of seven major companies developing AI technologies to manage potential AI risks. These companies, Amazon, Anthropic, Google, Inflection, Meta, Microsoft, and OpenAI, have agreed to a set of principles that focus on providing AI that is safe for the public use, secure from cyber attack, and that manages issues such as fraud, deception, societal risks, and other dangers. The regulation of AI companies appears to have significant bipartisan support, even if politicians do not agree exactly on how to do it. The current agreement lacks any significant safeguard for privacy, an oversight that we hope will be remedied soon. To me, it seems like the privacy angle is probably one of the more bigger issues that ought to be reflected on. I know they tend to do this more in the Europe side. Uh, they're more concerned about personal privacy, which seems a little backwards for us here in the U.S. I would have thought Privacy would be part of it, but we don't actually do as well on that as they do over there in the union. Um, any thoughts on uh, protections against AI, Pastor Denzer? Your Man, favorite tool here. You're the uh, you're the technology guy of the two of us for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you played around at all with any of these tech AI I, tools? I haven't done it yet. I've definitely thought about it. I, I could see the advantage of having somebody do my here. Let me Google that searches for you. Uh, but. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I've been reading the the trick with using some of these things is actually using AI to write the AI question for the AI. So it starts to become a little circular. So you actually go to something like uh, OpenAI to the chat GPT and you say, how would I ask you this type of information? And then it, in the best way, you know, what would I say? What would be the prompt to ask you about um, this thing? And then we'll write a prompt for you. And then you ask the prompt and it prompt and it supposedly gives better answers. I thought that was interesting. It seems like there could be a lot of applications that be very useful to help you do your thinking, mm -hmm. uh, maybe more systematically. Uh, but ultimately, it still has to have a person behind it. It can only c aggregate what stuff has been input 
by other people at other times. Right? Exactly. Well, and it still has its own bias that it has to be aware of. The bias is is the programmer's bias. There's mm -hmm. no. I mean, this is the issue with AI ultimately is that it's it has the perception of unbiased information. And yet the way it selects information is inherently biased because it was determined once again by a programmer. So there's no way to get out of the bias, even in, in AI. Yeah. Frightening stuff. All right. Uh, next snippet. Patrick Zaki, a human rights researcher in Egypt, was pardoned by Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. Zaki has already spent 22 months in prison before court sentenced him to an additional three years in prison for spreading misinformation. The cited misinformation was a report written by Zaki about the persecution he and other Coptic Christians face in Egypt. And here this is just a commentary on ongoing persecution throughout the world. Um, in Egypt, of course, it's a heavily Muslim population, and uh, they, they do persecute Christians for their faith, even even when reporting true true facts and stories about persecution that they that they face. So any thoughts there, Pastor Dinser? No, I don't think so. Okay. This next one is a fun one. Um, a fortunate farmer in Kentucky discovered a cache of over 700 gold coins dating from the American Civil War. The coins include $1, $10, and $20 increments, although they are worth much more. The most valuable, a version of the $20 coin, goes for well in excess of six-figure sums. The find is already being called the Great Kentucky Hoard. Now, is that just because of inflation or because of collector's value? <laughs> Maybe a combination of both here. Well, it's kind of, I mean, so the Missouri Senate was founded, what, 40s, right? Mm -hmm. 1847. 1840s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is just a 20 years after the Senate was founded. Uh, we were all, for the most part, still speaking German, <laughs> not getting along with those English-speaking Lutherans uh, from Missouri, Ohio, and other states. Uh, so yeah, just interesting to think of our particular Lutheran history uh, alongside the Civil War. And, uh, I, you know, I've, I'm from Michigan, so I never thought about it as much as you guys from down south <laughs> yes. maybe have thought about it. But my understanding is Missouri was a messed up place to be at the Civil War. Kind of yes. goes both directions. We had a we have a post, and I'll have to dig this up. Uh, i have to dig this up as an online post about uh, Walther's division with his own congregation. I think it was Trinity regarding the Civil War. Um, and I forget how the side that he, he operated with, but they, they weren't, he wasn't in agreement with his congregation. It was kind I, of interesting. If I remember correctly, and somebody will write in and uh, correct us, I'm yeah, yeah. sure. I, I thought Walther's understanding seems to be almost like Germany, not a unified country, but Germany with a bunch of territories, and every territory has its own laws. Maybe it's even its own church order, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could see how that understanding of uh, Germany would also just translate right into the the confusion we had here in America, maybe. Sure, sure. And that was all part of it, of course. In the past, on to the next snippet. In the past, LW has reported on teen depression and suicide rates. In a new study, female teens who identified as politically liberal experienced significantly higher rates of depression than female teenagers who identified as conservative. The study claims that the difference is due to the fact that conservatives supposedly target liberal teens. Critics, however, are not buying it. The agendas being pushed by many secular liberal progressives are not simply political but existential, questioning the very fabric of reality and existence. Readers of The Lutheran Witness know the importance of providing children a foundation built not on politics of whatever variety, but upon the word of Christ uh, and him crucified. I think the the point here is, uh, you know, of course we can point fig fingers at other political parties, but I think the point here is the some of these movements uh, for transgenderism and 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 um, and homosexual agendas that are p pushed by the political left 
are creating existential questions in young teenagers' minds and, and causing issues there. And I think the reality is here, once again, uh, parents need to be te- teaching their children, keeping them in the faith, being in, in worship regularly, and keeping them founded on Christ rather than finding comfort and confidence in political philosophies and agendas. That I can say amen to. Uh, the, this is a hard uh, study to comment on, I suppose, because depression and suicide are deeply personal and individual. Mm-hmm. And especially in the case of suicide, we all want to know what's going through people's heads. It's too late for that, sadly, uh, which is what makes it so agonizing. Um, and then to and then to do it as kind of a blanket study on what kind of uh, nebulous uh, giant affiliations, yeah, are uh, are individual are are moving whole groups of people to do something so individual and personal and direct, uh, you know, impossible to say like, well, that's it. It's a one to one correlation. Your political perspective will determine what your life is going to be or <laughs> exactly. not be. Uh, but uh, is there a sense? I wonder. I mean, I've I've kind of thought this. Is there a sense in which we can see how political ideologies have taken religious significance for many people? You know, as they've abandoned the church, they've started to find hope and confidence. Uh, I mean, they're looking for hope, hope and confidence somewhere, right? And yeah. and many people, I think, on both sides of the political spectrum, are finding this in in political uh, debate. It's why much of the political language these days has taken religious overtones uh, and mm. religious terms and appropriated them. I mean, have you have you seen something similar? I mean, would you agree? I, I see that many places. Uh, and one of the thoughts I have maybe about uh, uh, the way that kind of a progressive mindset looks at the world and, and maybe the past as well is the goal is really to overcome the problems of the past. We mm-hmm. look we look at the past and see mostly difficulties and things that uh, we know better about now. Well, translate that into your own future uh, Ideally, your own future, the future will be looking down on you mm-hmm. uh, because you are backwards as well. Uh, that's not a very optimistic or hopeful future in my mind. Um, I don't know if the, I have a harder time talking about conservative and liberal than I do, I think, Christian and non Christian. Mm-hmm. But there's something about uh, respect for the past, which I think Christianity has simply by virtue of the fourth commandment and by the fact that we have the scriptures and are constantly looking into our maybe distant past even with Israel that's somewhat disconnected to us, but connected to us in Christ Jesus mm-hmm. and through him exclusively. Uh, you know, we look at the past and have some foundations there, and then we have a hope for the future, even though ultimately our hope is rooted in an entirely different future in the resurrection, right? Yet it's that confidence in the resurrection that leads us to care also uh, for our futures, for our posterity, for um, that we want the gospel to be heard in where I live and among my people and even in my family in years to come. Uh, that I think certainly gives, let's put it this way, a positive argument for why uh, there is optimism. And uh, uh, I should be around to see that. All right. Next snippet. This July, Mississippi began allowing parents on religious grounds to forego state mandated vaccinations for their children who attend pre-K and grade schools. Mississippi has for has some of the highest rates of vaccination in the country due to, at least in part to a lack of religious exemptions. In a lawsuit against the state, plaintiffs successfully argued that the lack of a religious exemption for vaccinations violated their religious freedom, thus prompting the order from the U.S. district judge. This is simply reporting facts. I, th- I think it's interesting. Uh, previous to this uh, law, Mississippi did not allow uh, religious, vac- religious exemptions for state vaccination. So if you were going to go to pre-K through... Uh, grade school, you had to be have certain vaccinations. Not the case anymore. Did you have any thoughts here? 
kind of mm. hard to comment. I know this is a this is a fraught topic. This is why we don't really have a, a stance on it. I just thought it was an interesting kind of change in the law. I, I kind of would have expected it to have gone the other direction. Yeah, I mean, Christians have, have many reasons for why they do things. But we all come to the world, and we don't always see the exact same thing. And then the question is, how many of those do we have to kind of personally litigate among right. our community, among our church body? And uh, I think it's wise. We, we're we pretty limited and pretty re- hesitant to command, to enforce things that are not very clearly laid out in the scriptures. Now, maybe yeah. the government doesn't take that same stance, but uh, uh, I don't know. Given all the given all the abuses that have happened in the past, I think I could see the the I can see the value in having these kind of exemptions. Yeah. Um, an update on the shooting from Nashville: Parents and family of those killed at the Covenant School shooting in Nashville in April pooled their resources to pay the funeral expenses of the shooter who killed their loved ones. The shooter's parents, themselves Christians, were recipients of the mainstream media ire for supposedly failing to accept their daughter's transgender lifestyle. Some on social media blame ulterior motives for the gesture from these Christian parents and family, though what these motives might be remain mysterious in the end. Those without Christ cannot comprehend the deep and abiding nature of forgiveness and restoration. I don't know too much about this story, unfortunately. I was busy with other things, but one of the things I did remember was a conversation that the there's very little media coverage kind of of the victims and, and sympathy, which I don't know if the media is the place we go to look for sympathy, mm-hmm. but um, usually that's when we have a disaster, our hearts go out in a very generic, secular way. And we would say our prayers, Lord have mercy, go out to those who were who were attacked. Or, uh, but that mm-hmm. didn't happen in this case, which made it kind of strange. Um, as to the criticizing or being angry at parents uh, for things that go bad, I have a hard time doing that as a pastor. I mm-hmm. mean, think of all the times you've you've tried to say something as kindly as possible, uh, as gently. You tried to communicate your great love for somebody, which is not based on what they've done, but simply because of your relationship to them and, and your care for them. And yet they're looking for acceptance or mm-hmm. approval, and in that case, maybe you can't give it. I, I do think it's difficult for us to to recognize uh, that sometimes people need to have it their way, and then when they don't receive that, they try to kind of outsource that rejection onto you or project it. Um, mm-hmm. I've certainly had that done to to myself, uh, which is painful. Um, I don't know. As Christians, we continue to to bear with that. I don't know. That's that's just part of the reality of that's the part of the reality of love true love isn't it that it doesn't attack others or or cut them down it actually bears the pain and makes a sacrifice itself on behalf of the other we see this par excellence in christ jesus uh, but it also is true for us when we love somebody that's a sacrificial act i think uh, marriage parenting these are sort of things we find it clearly done we're sacrificing for the sake of those we love and I think that's what you see here in these parents who are helping the, these uh, this, these Christian parents of the shooter, you know, by paying for those expenses and reaching out in love uh, and helping that family. It was wow. a pretty incredible gesture of, mm-hmm. uh, of love, sacrifice. And the last one to wrap it up is a little bit of fun. Beware of the invasion of the lion-headed rabbits. Oh, no. A colony of domesticated rabbits has overrun Wilton Manors, Florida. The rabbits, numbering from 60 to 100, are cute, cuddly, and unafraid. They also have destroyed area gardens, area outdoor lights, and other outdoor gear. 
The source of the trouble is apparently a local breeder who released some of the rabbits before leaving the community. The rabbits, unafraid of humans, have multiplied and even befriended local canines. They are, however, susceptible to heat stroke, a less than ideal condition in the Florida heat. It was funny listening to the neighbors complain about how to get rid of these these little pests. It's just a delightful, fun little story. If you get a chance to pick up the magazine, we included some picture of some lab, a picture of some lion-headed rabbits there to give you something to chuckle over. I feel like they've got uh, alligators, don't they? They should be able to solve this problem. <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you, Pastor Denzer, uh, for doing it off the cuff. You did an excellent job. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I appreciate Great it. Great to join you. If you have snippets you'd like us to include in the uh, or, uh, around the LCMS or the general news around the world, let me know. Send it to uh, uh, lutheran.witness at lcms.org, or you can do it on our website, witness.lcms.org slash contact. Uh, send me a note, and I'll do my best to include it in an upcoming edition of the snippets. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective.